Welcome to Season 4 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the leaders' conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? Well, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you don't never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. So we're joined today by Dr. Betty Johnson. Welcome to the show, Betty. Hi, thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. So Betty, you and I met This is wild to say about five years ago, we both started working on our doctorates at the same time at Antioch University. And, you know, during our time together, we regularly were able to discuss um, issues on everything from change management to leadership to social justice. And recently, as you know, uh, I saw your dissertation defense, and I thought it would be really interesting for you to share your work on our show. Uh, We talk regularly about teaching and planning programs. However, all of us are in meetings regularly to get work done. And there were some meaningful insights that you shared that I said afterwards, I said to Dan, I was like, oh, we got to have Betty come on the show and talk about her work. I just felt like it was so important. Um, So before we get into that part of the conversation, can you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a leadership consultant. I have my own firm, Bridging the Difference, LLC, headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, my hometown. And I work with organizations, usually large organizations, uh, around the globe. I have clients in Mexico, the Dominican Republic, the Caribbean. Um, I've worked with organizations headquartered in Germany. And so the reason that I have this real interest in meetings in general is because I know from that work over the last 30 plus years that meetings are where it happens, right? Meetings or where the work gets done. We can do our individual tasks without being in a meeting. But if there's anything that requires other people's input or some kind of uh, consensus building or what we want is for people to be engaged in the work that's happening, contribute what they know, meetings are where it happens. So if meetings are good, work is good. If meetings stink, works things. <laughs> so um, that's really my philosophy. And it guides a lot of the work that I do with clients. Most of the time when I do team interventions, the behaviors and the activities that really need to change up are how people are with each other in meetings. Yep. So uh, that's my work. And as a researcher, The research that I did for my dissertation uh, is not the first research that I've done, but what was really exciting about it for me is, of course, it was peer reviewed. It had all the rigor of having faculty oversight. Um, It was the first time that I had done regression analyses and that was a growth curve for me. Uh, But I am really interested in fundamentally, when people come together to get work done, What is it that fuels greater accomplishment 
and positive relationships. And that's really fundamental in everything that I do. We know from Marty Seligman that those are two of the pillars of well-being. And they're also what keeps us secure in our jobs and helps us enjoy the work on a day-to-day basis. I love that. It's so interesting to, to hear you talk about that. And you couldn't be be more right that this transition that we've made from conference calls to all of a sudden when it feels like when Zoom came on the market, that that was a game changer because there was just a lot of clunky technology out there. I mean, we used to use Adobe Connect um, six, seven years ago at our university. Oh my goodness, trying to teach our synchronous classes that way because we were some early adopters of, of trying to do these hybrid classes where we had students all over New England and sometimes international students in our grad programs. And we try to quote unquote, zoom them in, video them in, whatever. And, you know, the Brady Bunch on the screen and then half of the class also in person, you know, and, and just, oh my goodness, but when Zoom came in the market, it changed it. But in kind of at the same time where it wasn't, I mean, being able to just access it on your phone or what have you. I know even when I worked for, um, I used to work for John Hancock Mutual Funds in an office in Tampa when I was a master's student. And they would do the video conference where we'd sit at a long board table and there was a monitor at the end of the of the room. And then the same thing was going on in Boston, you know? And, and so that was, there was still that video conferencing like atmosphere, but it wasn't where we are today. And oh my goodness, I mean, just the fatigue that we experience from just, you know, oh, another, another one of these meetings stuck in this room in the video room. And it's interesting to see that evolution to where we are now, where folks are can access the meetings from, from wherever they want, but the engagement levels are something that I'm really, really curious to, to learn about. So your topic sure seems really timely. You've shared a little bit about it. How, do, how were you able to kind of capture this? Because I know the time and the energy that goes into completing a dissertation and, and how were you able to just grab this this opportunity and and publish this research and connect it to this this pandemic that we've we've oh, we're a year in now at this point that we've experienced. Yeah, it was super fast. It was super fast, Dan. And I think that's because I was so driven personally to understand what is this thing that we were hearing about. Like I think it was in late March that the phrase Zoom fatigue was coined. And everybody could start talking about Zoom fatigue. And I was feeling it too, frankly. So it's like, what, what is this about? I was already in the middle of a, re, a different research project for my dissertation. And that project stalled because of COVID. It was an organizational change project. And who wants more change? I mean, we were just all reeling from COVID-19. So when that project stalled, and I had this hunger to get my dissertation done in 2020, I said to myself, well, what else do you want to know, Betty? And it was the whole Zoom fatigue that really captured my attention because of my professional work, but also because I was tired. And, And I I really believe that when we can change up how people experience their lives at work, when we can make it more energizing versus draining, that energy carries over into our families, our communities, and people have more to give because it isn't all used up at work. So it's part of my personal mission. Um, and I thought the quickest way I can get this done, what is the quick way? Because I want to I want to get my data while it's happening, not retrospectively, while people are engaged in this. I knew a survey was the fastest way to get information. I knew I had enough contacts in my network, thankfully, that could do a convenient sample and get it done quickly. Uh, and and I was very interested in learning how to do regression analyses. So it was a, like it was a big bite learning that for myself was a 
I really bit off more than I could chew, but I learned a lot fast. It's interesting how we get, I guess, almost voluntold to learn new statistical procedures. I remember we had, and I'm sure Antioch was no exception. You're, you're taken to a certain level of statistical analyses in your in your uh, graduate research methods courses. And I remember we had stopped just before factor analysis. So I took two semesters of, of, of ed stats uh, or stats for educational research and what have you in my doc program. And it was right before that. And so I, I'm meeting with my methodologist and he says, well, uh, your topic is going to be one that's just prime for factor analysis. I said, that sounds amazing. What is that? <laughs> you know. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so uh, he goes, let me get, grab a couple articles for you from, you know, pulls a bunch of articles from some folders and goes, take these to the copy machine. And, you know, after you've read them, we can talk again. And, um, it, and they also had this amazing center for, it was doctoral students that were um, doing the measurement design and evaluation doctoral program. And so they, as part of their scholarship, I think there was a couple of students that worked in this like doctoral student help center for like five hours a week or 10 hours a week. That person, Jennifer, definitely was uh, in my acknowledgement section of my dissertation because I couldn't have done it without her. I had no idea what I was getting in, but I learned a ton about that. And, it, and it's and it's great to be able to, to learn firsthand, like, you know, you construct your own survey, which sounds like you did. You, you get your own, getting the sample, just diving into that research, making it relevant to you and learning so much about the statistical procedure and, and the results and really, really showing that ownership. And no, no, I love that hearing about your process and, and definitely want to learn more about what you, what you found. So. Well, wait, before you get into what you yeah. found, I do, I got to jump in because I'm, so I'm at the ILAB, which if, if you're in our program, you're familiar, that's mm -hmm. your method section, you know? And so it's interesting because like Betty, when you said regression analysis, I'm like, oh, mine is hierarchical linear modeling because I have these nested, you know, this nested data that I need to sort through, you know? And so it's interesting that, that, you know, that's one of like your learning goals from the dissertation that you wanted to be better in this specific area, which um, I think those are the little things that keep you moving through such a large monumental um, accomplishment of, you know, researching and writing your dissertation. Um, I also love the idea, and Dan, we have to do something about this, of this term we've created called me-search. I don't know if we've created, but it's come up on a bunch of our shows about people just talking about what they're interested in it. It's a fancy way of just saying positionality, but it, it's a nice way of tying, you know, your origin story into, you know, the work that you're doing. I, I love hearing kind of other people, like how they got into their me search, um, because they're simply asking the question, kind of what's affecting my world and how can I use this rigorous process to explore it? Um, so I know you talked about, you know, your method background, what was your central question? Like, what did you start out wanting to know? And then what were some of like the other subsequent questions that you had? Yeah, well, you know, in plain language, the question was, are we exhausted from video meetings? And if so, why? And what makes that better? <laughs> That's what I really wanted to know. And the reason that I cared about that is because you know, what happens in meetings is both influenced by the world around us, and then what happens in meetings goes and influences our world. So at the time of this research, you know, there was also uh, tremendous social unrest that uh, we reached a tipping point uh, with the murder of George Floyd. And many people were uh, outraged you know, at this systemic injustice that we experience in society. And so while we're, 
while we're going through this cataclysmic change related to COVID, we're also dealing with very emotional issues related to what's happening in our society, confronting ourselves and each other, the greater and greater political polarization in this country, where people are no longer even able to speak to some of their family members. You know, all of this stuff is going on while kids are in the background and I'm trying to do a video meeting. And by the way, my parent has COVID and my grown, my adult child has moved home with me. I mean, we have more adult children living at home now than since the Great Depression. And elderly people are not moving into assisted living facilities because they don't wanna be in lockdown. You know, so all of this is happening. All of this distress, emotional turmoil that is both related to COVID and just generally emerged, you know, reared its head. Here's what I said. I have some ideas because, you know, I've done, a, I've done research on meetings. I read, I've been a you know, lifetime reader about team dynamics and so forth. So I have some ideas. Like I know that meeting load in regular meetings, like the meeting load is how many, the frequency and, and the number of hours. I know that in in-person meetings, the higher the meeting load, the higher the emotional exhaustion. That shows up in research. I also know about this thing called surface acting. And surface acting is where you pretend to feel positive when you actually, and you do this in a social environment, when actually what you feel is very negative. And so it's a masking, it's not just covering up, it's, it's projecting something positive. And I, I suspect, and we know that's correlated with emotional exhaustion, okay. But I also thought in this video meeting environment, in like April, May, June, I was seeing it. I'll never forget I was in this meeting with, there were like maybe 10 people in the meeting and we could all see each other Brady Bunch style. It was an hour long meeting and there was one woman who maintained a full smile the whole time. Now, this was not the Duchenne smile where you get the wrinkles around the eyes. This was teeth. And I thought how exhausted she must be at the end of this meeting because she is pretending this smile is very obvious. And I also saw people pretending to be optimistic when I knew your life's a mess because I knew these people, right? You've got so much stress going on in your life. And for this meeting, you're putting on this show. So I wanted to look at this surface acting and does that correlate with emotional exhaustion in the video meeting environment? I wanted to compare the level of surface acting to other studies because I thought this stuff's on fire. And I also... I thought, well, let's be open-minded about the video meeting thing and it contributing to emotional exhaustion because we're so isolated. Video meetings are the way we actually can see our colleagues. We don't have any other vehicle to do that, many of us. So I was interested in some other things too, like how do sociodemographics control for these relationships between emotional exhaustion, certain stressors, coping? So there were a bunch of variables in my study. Um, I was looking at the energy that you have to put into being at work while you've got all this stuff happening in your personal life. <clears throat> I was really interested in certain sociodemographics because I thought they would contribute to more surface acting and therefore create more emotional exhaustion. So I had, it was a 44 item survey. I used some items from existing scales, but then I also added my own to say things like, you know, on a scale of one to seven, how beneficial were your video meetings last week to you? And I asked some open-ended questions because like, I don't know what all this is about. I want people to tell me what makes video meetings exhausting? What do other people do that makes them less exhausting? What could people do to make them more beneficial? Questions like that. And 
So I came up with some interesting findings. The one I want to say that I think was so interesting is this idea of surface acting. And it made me think, so Dan and I are both, you know, in the classroom, we're, we're teaching and we work with students. So if adults are doing this at work, I wonder what it looks like for students. Are they surface acting? Like, you know, we talked to them about putting their cameras on and, you know, they may be able to school their face, but there may be things behind them in their environment that they can't change that are projecting that may be in direct contrast to, you know, what they're experiencing. I know I have started asking my students just like, how are you doing? And if you don't want to say it on the screen, put it in the chat box, you know, direct message me so that you can get to like break up a little bit of that acting and say, you know, this is a place where you can be authentic and it might not be okay, but maybe you can use this as a little bit of a break from what you're experiencing. Or maybe it's, you don't need to be here because what you have going on, you need to deal with. And, and, you know, you got to take that time out. But I think we don't know if we're not like engaging and asking and kind of creating those spaces. But, but yeah, so I just wanted to jump in there. Yeah. And I well, don't know sure. if Dan was thinking of anything, but I just wanted to jump in. I, I thought that was such an, and that's where I kind of got stuck a little bit. Well, surface acting is something that's done in response to a hierarchical situation, a social hierarchy. Yeah. So when, when you have a sort of di more democratic social context, surface acting is less likely. I mean, some people are just going to do it because they, they, they need to be seen a certain way or they're dealing with something so bad that they don't want to put it out there in the group. It's when surface acting becomes chronic. That's when it becomes exhausting. And so there's a difference, which we can talk about if you want, between surface acting and impression management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important distinction to make, especially given what you just raised about your students. Right. Well, I, you know, I think it's worth exploration. And, and so in my uh, department, we're, I'm in public relations. So we talk about impression management, but we talk about it from a business perspective, the CEO, the, the spokesperson, the organization, you know, we don't ever really bring it on to ourselves and how we look in those spaces. It's usually contextualized in PR. Um, but no, I want you to finish talking about your dissertation because I feel like I could jump in and ask a hundred questions before we get, get to that part. So how about I just talk for a minute about this thing, impression management. I think it's timely. So surface acting is when you pretend to have certain emotions. Impression management is when you show up to fulfill the role that the social context gives you. And so impression management is really about all that mess that's happening in the background. I mean, it might be that I feel stressed from it and I'm trying to pretend that I'm not stressed by acting like I'm super relaxed. You know, surface acting is pretending the opposite of what you really feel. So in a business context, how surface acting happens is somebody will say, oh, we, we've got a, a new initiative and we think it's gonna be really great and we want you to be involved. And I will smile like I think that's a good idea <laughs> and what I really am is scared because I think that that is going to be the end of my job. Okay, that's what surface acting is. As an example, impression management is, I need my makeup to look good. I want my hair to be right. I want my microphone to sound good. I need good video quality. Um, for some, impression management is, I need to have this nice thing appearing in the back because my role my role as a consultant, scholar, practitioner, and I need to project that. And anything that belies that identity is going to create stress for me. 
So this, the impression management stress is coming in my, in my data. There was just, it was rampant. The impression management stress it showed up in the qual responses to the qualitative questions. What makes video meetings exhausting? Uh, I look so old. How did this happen? I have to show up and always be wearing a suit because if I'm wearing anything less than that, people are going to think I'm not capable, but I'm in my house. So these are impression management stressors that we can do something about as a culture. This, this is so interesting to me. I mean, I think about the transition that that, that I made because you know, almost 11 months ago, what have you, my office in, in my house is just off center to the, to the kitchen. It's just the way that our house is set up. That became almost an unusable space very quickly because I, I, I just hadn't played around with like the Zoom background picture feature, you know, what have you. And so kids are going in, they're grabbing snacks, whatever. I mean, you know, what, the kitchen's the most popular place in the house during during a pandemic. And, and there was this allure early on that, oh, daddy's on a meeting. Like I'm going to, you know, do some backflips or, or, or handstands or whatever. This is my, my, my youngest daughter who's a gymnast. And and so then I was like, oh, I got to put the background up, you know, and that started to remove that alert. And once they started having Zoom uh, class meetings, they're like, Zoom isn't as fun as we thought, <laughs> you know, so that happened. But I think about this idea of impression management and the exhaustion that it can cause for folks where it's, it's not just your your physical appearance of just your face on the screen. It's everything around your environment that's going on at home, whether it's, you know, you've got somebody to care for, or there's background noise, or there's a delivery man, or you've got animals making noise or, or what have you. And so I'm thinking about what you that connected with what you wrote in your uh, in your dissertation, some of the findings about this idea of, you know, you're, it, it's just the, the necessity of meetings. Like, yeah, we need meetings to get things done in some, you know, in most organizations. But this idea of making extra, putting extra care into, is this meeting necessary, has been heightened because of, uh, because of the pandemic. So I, and I think because some of the social natures of what happens before a meeting, what happens after a meeting, while there's chit chat, like a lot of that has been robbed from us because we're not able to have those water coolers or the meeting in the hallway. I mean, some of the times where things that are so important happen, now these things certainly happen on text messages or in private messages or things like that, but it's not the same. And so I, it's interesting that you found that, you know, this, this uh, relationship between how significant the meetings felt, you know, were they useful? And that seemed to not contribute to any type of emotional exhaustion. But when they weren't useful, that seemed to have a huge uh, relationship to this exhaustion level. And this idea that family, household, personal responsibilities are certainly going to compete for some of that energy to have some of this impression management and some of this surface acting. And I found it really, really fascinating that you found that the non-social nature of work meetings versus you found that non-work video gatherings didn't didn't contribute to emotional exhaustion, which makes a lot of sense for me because you don't have to worry about your impression management if you're just like having a Zoom happy hour. Like if you're having a Zoom happy hour with folks, it's probably folks that you want to get together with and like you're not trying to impress, you know? And so this is just an interesting dichotomy for me. I'd, I'd love maybe if you could dive into to a little bit of that because it's it's so true and how we need to rework and kind of redesign how we do these Zoom meetings because we don't have... we we're losing a lot of the human connection and meeting facilitators need to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. I completely agree with you, Dan. You know, one of the things that happens in terms of usefulness is I'm just, just be blunt about it. 
uh, let's say that we're having a meeting, Dan, and you're my boss. And Lauren and I are, you invited us to this meeting. You'll walk away from this meeting because you're the boss and you call the meeting. You're going to think it was useful. And Lauren and I are quite likely to think it was a waste of time. Now, there's, there's scientific data to support this. And so this is really a hierarchical control issue. Um, I might feel like I don't know why I was invited to that meeting to begin with. Why did Dan want me there? I didn't say a single word. He, I was just there while he talked. And it was mostly just him and Lauren. You know, the, the, the leader of a meeting that science shows controls the conversational pairs. All meetings are paired conversations. And so the usefulness is, was asked or measured as useful to me, <laughs> not useful to my team, right? Useful to me. And what we found is then with media, video meetings were not useful to me, it does significantly contribute to emotional exhaustion. So I think there is a way to look at usefulness and usefulness isn't about just getting the job done. That accomplishment part is also about the personal relationships, even in in-person meetings. They serve two purposes, get the work done and build relationships. So if we're not doing both of those in a video meeting, then we're, not, we're only meeting half of people's needs. Among the things that people said made video meetings either less exhausting or more beneficial, you know, which is kind of the same thing in a way, is the, the number one most frequent <laughs> occurring in the qualitative data was make them short. So when we think about what's short, I might think a 45 minute meeting is short because I'm used to hour long meetings. But what we're really talking about in terms of short is no filler, make them short. And that's in conflict with our need for social engagement, for building the relationships. A short meeting as Warren Buffett famously said about his meetings, he had, he had stand up meetings only, be brief, be right, be gone. Well, that works for Warren Buffett, but anybody who's ever worked for Warren Buffett knows he's really hard to work for. <laughs> it's not very enjoyable. And so I think with in this video meeting environment, we're no longer able to, you said water cooler, but I recall walking into a conference room and you're walking in the door, you're having a small talk, right? The meeting still starts on time, but you've got those few minutes of eye connection, one-on-one -on -one chatter, maybe some laughs. You sit down at the table, you're waiting for the person who's late. And so you continue to have a little bit of small talk and then the meeting begins. That's all gone. When the video meetings are back to back, people jump in, they get to the meeting and they're, they're gone. So making them short is really in this, it can be in conflict with people's need for small talk. Thoughts about small talk were sort of almost equally divided between people who want more small talk and people who want less of small talk. And that reflects the, the well-being scheme that some of us need accomplishment more than anything else. I'll raise my hand for that. You know, we love getting it done and things that seem to waste time to us, they're actually beneficial to other people. So the, the, the solution then is, on that one particular dilemma is carve in time for small talk to each of your meetings. My colleague, Emily Axelrod famously, you know, uh, includes this in her model, the meeting canoe, which is this whole connect. And it can be connect over something that's superficial, like how, you know, how's your day, or it can be guided, like 
what's the one thing that was the, the best thing that happened for you last week? And so if you're worried about it going off the rails and being a waste of time for those, those of us who had this Germanic principle of get work done, you time it, you build it in a time slot in your agenda. And everybody knows it's only going to be the first five minutes. This isn't going to go on forever and waste my time. And even if you create a routine around doing that, those people like me who just want to get the work done sometimes, that'll be the five minutes we'll show up late, right? We'll check our emails for five minutes. Then we'll go into the meeting when the small talk is scheduled to stop. That's so funny. You, you've just, you must have been like a fly on the wall of our most recent department meeting because we have a new a new assistant professor who said, "Hey," and, and he was going to do this during uh, a meeting a couple of weeks ago, but we we just had so, we had an agenda. We just had to plow through some like really escalated things that, that occurred, and, and he said, "All right, well, we, can we start the next meeting off with this?" And he called them these one breath statements, which is like, "Here's what I need from you today, and here's what I can contribute." And one of our faculty members, senior faculty members, she had said, um, "You know." I don't really like this like touchy feely stuff. So I, I'm just going to, you know, check my email or whatever during, during this first, but she ended up actually engaging and going, you know what, that wasn't so bad. Like, Hey, you know what I'm, I'm going to share. And, but it was, it was interesting because we, we did work it into the agenda and I'm chair of the department right now. So I, I run the agenda, create the agenda, you know? And so, but I knew I get it. I, I've got to meet my folks where they're at. And so my agenda is the department's agenda. It's like herding cats anyway with faculty. I mean, what am I going to, what am I going to influence? You know? So, um, but that that was really, really important. And I think it did help to center us and, and make some of those connections too. It's so interesting that you talk about this. I, I don't know what the exact term that you use, something about just the, the binary nature or just the idea that like most meetings are about, you know, it's it's those conversations between one individual and another individual. Yeah, and that's why, how did you, what did you call it? They're paired conversations. Yeah. Like any meeting is, is a series of paired conversations and the data show that those pairings are controlled by the, mm -hmm. by the meeting leader. But right. here's another little interesting thing. Uh, there's kind of a shift in the controls because now in video meetings, the paired conversations are controlled by the person who controls the technology. Right, right, right. And so I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking about how that's kind of that, I guess too, has kind of been robbed from us because unless you're the first two people to show up to the Zoom meeting, as soon as that third person shows up, then the awkwardness begins because you want to be inclusive. And I think as leadership educators, you know, speaking to, to folks that are, you know, listening to, to this episode, like as we think about facilitation strategies and, and how we might, how this might show up in, in a classroom, it's, it's, it, you have to be, you have to have this hyper awareness of how you're facilitating these types of conversations during meetings. And, you know, we always talk about running effective meetings, but that's changed. I mean, we're now we're running, how do you run effective virtual meetings? And, and, and that just resonated with me so much, this idea of how do we, how do we pair that? <laughs> I guess, pun intended, how do we pair that down? Um, but this idea of how do we create these inclusive environments where it, it's just, it's always awkward when you're like, like, you know, you're talking to the person on the top left-hand side of the screen, you know, you're, Hey, you know, what was, or you're following up a conversation, but like the other six people are like, they're not connected. They don't know what you're talking. They're just hanging out. They're checking their email. They're doing whatever, you know, until like you said, waiting for somebody's late. You're waiting for the person, whoever's in charge to either start the meeting or to get fed up with the small talk and be like, all right, y'all, like, let's be linear. Let's get going. We have a, we got an agenda. We have to plow through here. Um, but there are so many other engaging uh, strategies that you can employ if, if you can build up that skill set. but it's such a new, it's, it's just a brand new capacity. So it's a brand new capacity, but there's still just some old school. Of course. Sense, yeah. okay? And 
And, but if it was common practice, it wouldn't have shown up in my data <laughs> that people are wanting more of this. So the, the common sense, no brainer blocking and tackling thing is have a purpose and an, an, a target outcome for the meeting and tell everybody what that is before they show up. And that is so business 101. And yet I hear from my clients and I saw in the data in this study, I mean, this was the third most frequently occurring complaint and recommendation is have a purpose um, because me, when, I, when I don't know what the purpose is of a meeting or what we're trying to accomplish in it, it's not useful to me. It's a waste of my time. Yeah. I think it's so interesting you share that. I So in doing some of my generational research, one of the things that overwhelmingly came up was like young, maybe... Those of us that are under, well, some, those that are under the age of 38 are like second, first and second generation self-helpers, just meaning that they were always told they could do it and to follow their passion and to find their meaning. And there's a whole generation of leaders out there who kind of do what they're told, meaning their boss kind of told them what to do. They did it because that was the nature of the workplace. And now there are these two cultures that seem to be clashing. I, I, I'm your supervisor, I'm your leader, you should just do and kind of follow, just trust me with no explanation. And there's a whole bunch of people who are saying, well, our teachers, our uh, pastors, like our church leaders, our community leaders have always explained to us the why. And now you're not telling us the why, but you want us to follow. And I feel like it's such an interesting dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. Like when I talk to my students, I say, I didn't have a leadership class when I was an undergrad at all. I think my first leadership class was when I went to Florida State and then now the whole leadership program at Antioch. And so I, I said to, to my students, like, you got to give them some grace because they, they really weren't taught to be leaders until well after they got out, if they were taught at all, you know? And so I love your point that if people were doing this right, it wouldn't have shown up in my data because it's not like you asked everybody from the same one organization at the exact same time. I mean, you had people all over the place responding. So yeah, like, you know, it's simple, but also, you know, maybe we need to go back and revisit some of those things. Um, yeah. I also think too, you mentioned I wrote down kind of meaning and work and relationships. And it reminds me of what I talked to my, like I, I lovingly drill this into them in my leading groups class. You know, decision-making groups are task and social oriented. And it's really about finding that right amount of tasks, like what they have to do and that right amount of cohesion, how close they need to be. And I love that that's still showing up in your work because it, it makes me feel like it's like good advice for them as they go into these spaces and they're trying to work with other people. Like, yeah, you got to get along and yeah, you got to get things done, but you got to figure out kind of what that balance is in every situation you go to. So. Well, and that, that getting along and building relationships, you know, what, what is challenging about that is I have my need for relationship building and the way I like to do it. And you have your need in the way you like to do it. And sometimes those needs are in conflict. So one example of this is in my data, roughly half of the people who said what makes video meetings less exhausting is when everybody has their camera on. And the other half said, what makes video meetings exhausting is having my camera on. So there's a conflict of need. 
for this relationship building in terms of camera use in video meetings. And this is probably why we see people go dark, you know, turn their cameras off because it's stressful. It's exhausting for them to be on camera. As one woman said, why do you need to see my face? <laughs> uh, emphatically in the data. What I would say is that if we want to show the sort of social support that helps other people be less exhausted. And isn't that our charge as leaders? Right? Sure, we want to get our own needs met, but we also, the other focus is so essential. That empathy for what the other needs and recognizing it's very likely to be different from what I need. How do we accommodate our own needs so that others are less exhausted? So that they're not exhausted fulfilling my need to see them. I think that uh, coming together, and, and one of my favorite phrases is, you know, the wisdom is in the room. What do people need? You may have one group where most of the people just really don't want to be on camera. And uh, one of my re respondents said, we're a group of engineers. We're never on camera. We hate camera. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm not typecasting engineers, but typically people who are more introverted, um, if it's a big meeting, it exhausts them to see all of these people all at the same time and try to keep track with their facial expressions. So when you have a group, co-design is where it's at. Co-design. How do we want this to work? Do we want to be on camera? When do we want to be on camera? What about using the mute button? Because if we're all on mute and I ask a question and it takes you 30 seconds to unmute, that is 30 seconds. It's very frustrating for people who have high accomplishment needs. Mm -hmm. So how do we want to jointly design the way we're going to have our sessions together so that your meetings, your, your needs may not be met 100%. But through consensus, this is something that you can support. I love all that. You know, you gave us so much good information as well as some good advice for how can we be intentional about how we approach meetings. And so Dan and I, of course, appreciate having you on the show. Um, we could go on. I feel like we could go on with a lot of our guests. I feel like we could do whole season series sometimes with just like one or two guests, but we want to just wrap it up by saying thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you for joining us and want to wish you the best of luck as you continue to navigate 2021 and COVID and the pandemics and all of the, the problems and issues and opportunities out there for you. So thank you so much, Betty, for joining us today. Thanks to you both. This was fun. We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's Dr. Underscore Leadership. And uh, Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Mrs. Laura J-B. Um, and you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The Support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what 
ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you'll listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. 